Well, welcome. Um, got a couple of questions for you that I want to ask you. Uh, what do you think of these protests or the counter protests? What do you think of restrictions, reopening? What do you think about the provincial government? How have they been dealing with things? What about the federal government? How are they doing? Do you think we should open up faster, slower? What do you think about vaccines, showing proof of vaccines? How do you think we're going to fix the economy and deal with that? Is it time to get rid of masks? Or do we need to keep them for longer, indefinitely? Have you noticed uh, there's a lot to fight about these days? I know you have. Because I talk to so many people, and almost everybody that I talk to, this stuff comes up. And there's a lot of feelings around it. Most of us, and I, I'm not one side or the other is not the point here, most of us are frustrated for one reason or another, maybe even angry, very concerned, wondering why everybody doesn't see the issues the way that we see the issues. And if everybody did see the issues the way I saw the issues or you saw the issues, then maybe we would be all better off. Many of us have had very awkward conversations with people where we've understood that perhaps us and them are very passionate about the same issue and all of a sudden realizing, oh, we don't agree on that issue, even though we're both passionate about it. Some of us have had uh, very difficult conversations with family, even to the point where you would say, I don't know if I can be around my family right now. I don't know if they want to be around me. Some of us have had these, I can't even go there. I don't even really want to see them because I know some of this stuff is going to come up and I don't know how we're going to resolve it. And we see things so differently and I have no idea how we're going to just move past it and it's become a, a real problem. Some of it is with your friends. Some of us on social media, you've had to, to block people or mute people or unfollow people because you're just sick of seeing certain posts that come from a certain perspective that drive you crazy. Many of us, we're very frustrated, we're very angry, we feel like we've been hurt. Perhaps you feel like, like, like in certain circles, and again, I'm not trying to say this from one perspective or the other uh, on any issue, except sometimes many of us have felt like, I've been pushed out of this, I don't belong here anymore because I disagree with certain other people. And it's come to the point where I think it's very important for us to talk about this, even as a church, because we really can't ignore it. We can't ignore the fact that agreement is extremely elusive. In our culture, in your workplace, in your family, and even when you come to church. Now, here's the thing. That's not actually new. We've disagreed on all kinds of things over the years in all phases of life, including church. And every generation or, or every uh, aspect of life, different era of life, um, there are certain hot-button issues that we go, well, I, you know, we disagree about a lot of things, and you know, they're just not, they're not up at the top. They're not the ones that get us emotional. They're not volatile. They sort of simmer below, or they're not the most important issue that we're dealing with, and so it doesn't seem like a big deal. But every era, every different phase of life has the certain issues that really get us going. They're front and, and, and right in, you know, we can't avoid them. We're dealing with them in our practical lives. They become theological issues, sociological issues, economic issues, on and on. It just permeates our whole lives, and we need to deal with them. And so while disagreement in all of life, including when we come together as a family, as a church family, is not new, it's something we have to figure out how to deal with and, and how to talk about. We need to be able to work through some of those emotions that really get us going. And this morning... We took communion together as a reminder of what brings us together. What is it that gives us unity? What is it that holds us together even when we don't agree about even very important issues? 
And as you'll see, I'm not going to say, hey, we got a bunch of issues, and we should just agree that they're not that important. That's not the case. There's very many important issues that we need to sort through. And we need to, uh, when agreement is so elusive, figure out how is it that we can come together? How can we remain in unity? How can we love one another? How do we approach controversial issues? All right, are you ready? I hope we're ready. Can I ask one favor? I don't do this very often, but uh, for those of you in the room especially, could I just ask that as I preach where you are silently as I preach through, can I ask two people to be praying for us, praying for protection spiritually, praying for unity, praying for me as I preach that we would hear from God today? Just give me a quick wave. You don't have to say anything out loud or anything. If you're willing just to commit to praying over this next little while, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, again, we want to come together with the spirit that unity, uh, that the spirit of God gives us even when our emotions might get going even when we tackle some tough issues, uh, some difficult things. I want to work through in this series um, that we're calling Rise Above, the book of Galatians, and I want to find some very powerful principles that I think uh, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you into this conversation and to investigate and to see uh, in a topic that we're as a church wrestling with just as much as anybody else in the world, uh, to just ask ourselves, how does following Jesus and how does the presence of God change uh, how we might approach certain things in our lives. So I want to go through the book of Galatians, which I think is so powerful and has so much for it. It's a, it's a time where Paul's writing into a church, and there's, there's a lot of controversy. So this isn't new. Paul, you know, these churches get planted, this one in Galatia, and then uh, people had come in, and they were, they were kind of stirring up the people, and they were telling them different messages. And Paul is writing this letter, partially because they've attacked Paul, And so he's going to tell them where his message comes from that he taught them originally. And he's going to call them back to a place of unity as they deal with this controversial stuff to bring them back together. So I think so much for us to learn from this letter. I'm going to start in Galatians verse 1, uh, chapter 1 and verse 11. And we'll come back to some of the early verses later. Verse 11 says, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, on the face of it, that seems uh, bold, confident, maybe even cocky. My message is the one from God. But what we're going to see in Paul's life is actually the opposite of that. Here's Paul's conversion experience we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul did not study his way to become who he is when he writes this letter, although he was a great studier, and we'll find that out later. He didn't come to all the right opinions by the ways that we might have thought he comes to all the right opinions. But instead, he had a dramatic experience with the risen Christ. He's on his way to Damascus. He is persecuting the church. He is against the church of Jesus Christ because it threatens the very religious system that he had. And his religious sensibilities, the things that he had learned, the things that he thought were most important about God and about the worshiping community. So this is not like, oh, we had a fringe issue, (laughs) But this is like comes central to who Paul is. So he's, he's persecuting the church because he feels like the church is a huge threat uh, to what is, what is what's proper for the worshiping, what is proper to believe and proper to live out. And then along the way, he meets Jesus. He says, who are you? He falls down. Jesus says, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And he is stricken blind. He's taken into the city where this man Ananias uh, meets him. And in a beautiful way, you can read about this in the book of Acts. He comes to him. He calls him Brother Paul. There's this great theme of forgiveness and restoration. And Paul's eyes are opened again. And one of the things in Scripture that we find oftentimes with the physical blindness 
and uh, physical regaining of sight. Uh, there's a deeper significance, even under what's happening physically, that this is a spiritually significant event, that his eyes had been darkened, that he did not see, but now his eyes are opened. Now he sees Jesus for who he is. And everything changed. He's baptized, and he becomes one of the great leaders of the church, of planting the church, of the early church, of starting everything. It is, it is a remarkably miraculous conversion. That's what he's talking about here. This message that I get, this, the thing that's happened to me, I didn't just go, wow, I'm such a good studier and I found out things about God. He was already good at that and here he was, a violent persecutor of other people. But then he met Jesus. And his eyes were really opened. Really opened. This is where his message comes from. It's why he says it was a revelation this was something that was revealed to me. It's not something that I just cooked up. It was something that God showed to me. Verse 13 says, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Some things about Paul, or some things about the language here, and then some things about Paul. Zeal. What is zeal? Zeal literally here means a passion that bubbles over. If you're zealous for something, it's like, oh, I'm so on fire for this. I just can't contain it. I got to do something about it. It's just, it's pouring out of me. Now, zeal can be both good and it can be bad. You can be zealous for the right things and it can be a great motivator for you. You can be zealous for the things of God and get this great passion that he works through, but you can also be zealous and point that zeal in a poor direction. And it can become frustration and anger that bubbles over in destructive ways, as we see here where Paul was at. I was zealous you go, oh, that's great. You should be passionate. You should be passionate about the things of God. You should be passionate about the worshiping community. You should be passionate about what you could do in the world. But I was zealous for the wrong things. It was aimed in the wrong direction. For Paul, he was so zealous for the tradition of his ancestors. Tradition of his ancestors means his interpretations of the law. As a Pharisee, as somebody who studied and interpreted the Bible, his Bible, Jewish scriptures, uh, the Old Testament for Christians, he knew it backwards and frontwards. And the tradition of the ancestors speaks to how do we interpret this? How do we live it out? It actually sounds like, from a religious perspective, something you should be concerned about and even zealous about. How do we live out what God has spoken to us through his scriptures? Sounds good, but Paul's zeal pointed in the wrong direction because he got so zealous, and I'm interpreting this, and I have a strong opinion about this and this and this, and here's how you should live, and you should live, and you should live, and this is our opinion on this matter and that matter and all these kind of things to the point where he was so zealous, it was coming out of him violently. He was persecuting people. Wow, that passion pointed in the wrong direction is actually very, very dangerous. He had all those prescriptions about how people should live. And by the way, again, the context is within a system, a religious system, that he would have had other people around him going, yeah, that's what the Bible says. I heard somebody not from our church recently, uh, you know, again, we have these discourses about different issues, and he was talking about uh, other people that disagreed with them, and, and he said, oh, I got so angry, and I got so frustrated, and I just wanted to, I just wanted to yell, haven't you read the Bible? Man, you know what I have found? There's a lot of people, good people who love Jesus, who have read the Bible and interpret a lot of things differently. In fact, I went through a couple of degrees in seminary and realized the more and more you study, the more areas you come to and you go, there's a lot of disagreement here. That's just the truth. And the deeper you study and you see different perspectives and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's way too simplistic to say, well, just read the Bible and that solves it. 
Paul goes, yeah, I was doing that, and yet my life pointed in a completely wrong direction. Listen to what he says, something similar, but he goes into more details in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. Listen to this. He says, Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous, there's a word again, that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I didn't just teach it, but I did it. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have declared everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Paul says, let me break down a few of those things. Here's the things that I was really good at and that I could rely on and that I could have confidence in. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Now, most of us, that's not really a big deal. But if you're a Jew, especially uh, in Paul's context, this was the prescribed way of doing things. A male born uh, in Jewish context, eight days, that's when you're circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of your identity as a, a Jewish person. I'm part of this family. I'm part of God's people. It's representing of a cutting away of your heart that you are, you are God's and he's working on your life. So this isn't just, you know, in, in our times. It's more maybe uh, something, uh, you have a decision about hygiene for your kids or something. This is deeper. This is identity issue, okay? We followed, even my family's followed the proper rules. I'm a pure-blooded citizen and uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. By this time, there had been so many times where the Jewish people had been conquered and thrown into diaspora, that is kicked out of their land and spread out, and then some of them come back, and then some of them uh, are conquered again and spread out. It was very hard for you to be able to trace your lineage back to your tribe. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Paul's saying, I can even trace my lineage back to the right family. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. We don't know what our tribe is. Well, I know my tribe. I am a real Hebrew. I was a member of the Pharisees. I had all the education to become a Pharisee. You're a religious leader. You're an expert in the Bible. He would have had to have the entire Bible memorized word for word, and then learned how to interpret it in certain ways and how to teach it. Pharisees, they had authority, they had the education, they had the expertise, and we were strict about it. We followed it, he says. But in all of that, he was zealous, persecuting the church. He obeyed everything, but he was not a loving person. He was a violent person. Amazing, he had it all. He comes to say that for his sake, Jesus' sake, once he, he met Jesus and everything changed, all this became worthless. Now, we're going to look at what that means, because it doesn't mean he threw it all out. He actually continued to learn the skills he would have learned to be a Pharisee, to write part of what becomes the New Testament. Uh, we see some of his interpretive techniques or techniques that the Pharisees learned and used. Didn't mean all of a sudden that disappears, my education doesn't matter, my family doesn't matter, all of that is used. But he puts this in context, he says, compared to knowing Christ, compared to what Jesus has done for me, everything else, I count it as garbage. Now, the word garbage here really is translated, should be translated something like, like feces. Actually, it's a very harsh word. And if I gave you the, the closest English equivalent, I'd probably get in a lot of trouble. It's a word I'm not allowed to say from the platform in church. I don't know why Paul gets to write it and it becomes scripture, and I can't say it from the front, but I'd get in trouble. Do you get my drift of what I'm saying? That's what I'm a big pile of 
You're with me, right? You know what I'm, okay. Paul, so zealous for the things of God, pointed in the wrong direction. And then totally changed. There's a lesson there. This is miraculous that he would change that much, isn't it? It's a really good learning for us. Because we get so zealous. I know what we're supposed to do. I know what we're supposed to think. I'm an expert. We're all experts now, aren't we? Okay, here's some signs that our passion or our zeal is misplaced. And I want you to be careful. This is not something for you to look down the row and say, yes, finally, so-and-so is going to learn that their, their passion is misplaced. This is for us to be introspective. Can we do that? Sign of maturity. This is for me now, okay? We're not going to stoke the fire of division here. We're going to look into ourselves and say, is God speaking to me and perhaps convicting me of something? Maybe you're becoming more and more adamant. That is dismissive of other people, unyielding in attitude or opinion in spite of all appeals and urgings, etc. Maybe you are digging in your heels to the point where you go, I don't understand how anybody could think X or Y. We're going to talk more about that in another uh, part of this series. Just adamant to the point where you dismiss other, oh, there's people, can you believe people believe this? Can you believe there are people, can you believe that there's these, these other opinions, they think that they're valuable, we become adamant. Number two, you become antagonistic. That is divisive. You find yourself not only disagreeing with people, because again, agreement is elusive. We're not always going to agree on stuff. We kind of have to get over that part. It's just not realistic. We're not going to agree on everything when we get into groups with other people. But do you come to the point where, and I can't be with those people. I can't talk to those people. Oh, they're bad. We start to divide. We start to, to push aside. You guys know, all in the context, I'm not saying that there's, there's not uh, opinions that are better than others. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes our opinions are just preference. My favorite color is blue. Your favorite color is green. There's no right and wrong there. There's not a better or worse, really. But of course, there's issues where, where, where there's opinions that really matter, and some are better than others. Of course, we'll talk about that in a second. But listen, we get to the point where we go, it's not just that I disagree with you. I can't stand you. I can't be with you. Or become arrogant, and I should get my way. I should be in charge. Everybody should do what I want them to do. Well, I'm adamant, I'm antagonistic, I'm arrogant. Paul was really all of these things. I've got the opinion that matters, and everybody else needs to fall in line. And that's how we're going to solve things. That's how we're going to be the worshiping community. For us, oh, is that how we're going to be church? Is that how we're going to be society? Is that going to work? Here's a couple of things important, I think, for us to note. It's possible that your opinions are wrong. Agree? Reluctantly agree? Anybody? It's possible you're wrong. Let's just accept that. Even if you have a really good opinion, it's possible that you're wrong. It's also possible that your opinion is right, but your attitude is wrong. So your attitude should be one of humility. This is step number one. How are we going to approach these issues? With humility. Honestly, we need it. If you are not humble, that is, if you can't admit that it's possible that I'm wrong or it's possible that I'm right and I have a terrible attitude that's still being very divisive, that's dismissive, that hurts people, if we can't admit those things, what we are is unrepentant. Repentance means to rethink, to go beyond your current mind, literally, to go beyond what you currently think. If you get to a point where you say, I'm no longer rethinking anything, that makes you, by definition, unrepentant. And that means we're unable to grow, we're unable to learn, 
and we're just going to be stuck. You go, but I'm right. Yeah, you could be, but you could also be wrong. Or you could be right and have a terrible attitude that's being more destructive than proactive. And so we must learn humility. We must approach this with humility. And that doesn't mean that every opinion is right. It just means our approach is different. And we've got to change the way that we think. Now, let's touch on this uh, whole expert thing. We're all experts, right? You've heard this. Uh, has anybody told you this? When they're maybe trying to convince you of, of something that they think and you don't think? Make sure you do your own research. Have you heard that? And what they're really saying is, if you read what I read, you would change your mind. And there's this little arrogance in that. Do your own research. Okay, here's how most of us do research. We Google stuff. We find articles that already are slanted towards what we think or feel. And we just load up on us. See, 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 see. To the point where then if we finally do read something that opposes us, we go, ah, that's trash. Haven't you read? Do your own research. That's not research. That's Googling stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there in Google, in any, any domain, any, any you know, topic. There's good and there's bad, but that's just Googling stuff. It's called confirmation bias, right? Okay, YouTube does this too. You, you go into YouTube and you want to find a video of cats doing funny things. Cats doing funny things. Search. Wow, I got a video of cats doing funny things. Watch that video. That was a good video. You know what YouTube does for you? Here's another video of cats doing funny things. Or maybe animals doing funny things. Oh, that's okay. I'll look at dogs doing funny things too. Well, guess what? The same thing happens when we're looking at information. We get a certain piece of information and then there's algorithms on our apps and in our news feeds and, and social media and they're going, oh, you like this way of thinking? I'll give you another article about that. I'll give you another opinion about it. Here's another voice speaking into the same thing. And all of a sudden you're going down this rabbit hole and you go, see, it's obvious. Look at all these people that believe what I believe. Confirmation bias. We're not experts. <laughs> We are, most of us are not experts on most things. And here's, here's the thing. Most of us can't be experts. It's not realistic. You go, so am I supposed to become a, an expert on vaccination? No, you can't. Most of us can't. Some of you can, because you've been for years. That's what you've been working in. But most of us can't do that. I can't come to that level of research. Some of you are researchers, by the way, in our church family. You've got a lot of history in that. Shows us a little bit about what research, you know, if you're in an academic setting or even a different kind of professional setting. Some of you are actually experts in, in certain areas because you've read everything about a certain topic that, that really matters and is influential because you've gone to years and years of, uh, of schooling or practical experience or both because, because you've read things from this side and that side and this expert and that expert because you've learned how to work through studies for yourself, not just reading opinions about studies, but actually knowing what they are. Some of you know that if you're going to research in that kind of environment, you just don't go, oh, you know, throw some data out and then some conclusions and then we'll put it out there. You have to be very careful about how you collect your data, how you interpret your data, the conclusions that you come through. There's a lot of checks and balances to say, I can't just take my own bias and influence it here. I have to try and weed some of those things out the best I can to come to, to good, proper conclusions. And when you get through the whole system, you have to send it out to people who aren't part of your experiments or your study, and you will be peer-reviewed. And they will start poking things and say, oh, this wasn't done quite right, or oh, this, this is a bias here. Or they'll start going, maybe you, you had some things that should, elements that weren't proper, whatever it is. Some of you know that way more than I do because you've lived that out. And you are an expert. Most of us can't get to that level. 
And if you're an expert, you're probably an expert. There's some exceptions, but probably in one thing. Because we just can't be experts in everything. But if you are, and I know some of you are, in, in your area, in your discipline, you will also agree. You can look around at other people who are experts and realize how easy it is to have all the right facts and all the right knowledge and still to be pushed in the wrong direction and have your ego ruin everything. And your impact is swayed. And so what's the point? Well, all of us need to have a certain amount of humility. If you have that kind of expertise, that should give you a leg up in forming an opinion. It should. And for those of us who don't have expertise, we should be, the church is such a good example of this. We have people we can go to and say, you know so much more about this than I do. Can you tell me about it? What have you learned? And to have a humility. And for those who are experts in a thing, to say, and, and you know, I do have a leg up and I have studied all of this, but to still have a different attitude that approaches it to say, but I don't know every little thing and I still might learn things that change my mind on something. I have to always be a learner. I have to always be humble. And so it doesn't matter. What a great gift we have of each other to say, wow, we have people that we can go to that have expertise in different areas. And I don't mean just academically. I mean, in all areas of life, we have people who have expertise. And as we come together in family, we have a great opportunity to learn from one another if we'll be humble enough to say, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I have more to learn. Maybe somebody else can teach me. Maybe we don't have to be split up just because we disagree, but we could actually learn from one another. It's a powerful, powerful thing to be humble. And we see in Paul how, how that changes everything for him, right? That he was fine, and God, God really had to get his attention. He's this dramatic experience with Jesus. But for Paul to go, I had all of that. I was an expert in the Bible. I was an expert in religion. I was an expert in, you know, this was for, for, the, for the Pharisees, would have all been tied up, politics, society, all these kind of things, right? I was an expert. And then I met Jesus and realized that was all big, steaming pile. <laughs> and throw, he didn't throw out all his knowledge. He used it, but he pointed it in a different direction. Instead of being pitted against people, he became for them. Instead of persecuting the church, he was willing to be persecuted as the church. Instead of taking lives, he was willing to give his life. This is so important. This is so important, what I want to say. In the climate, especially of the church in the West, and just the things that we see, again, in our culture that's very divided, but also in a church that is easily very divided, we cannot let an ideology or political party or opinion co-opt our passion or zeal for God and his kingdom. This is, this is a very real issue in the church. Oh, we all have to be conservative. We all have to be liberal. We all have to be traditional. We all have to be progressive. We all have to be this category or that category. And if people don't line up with me, and this is my opinion, and if you don't have the same opinion, and that is just not going to fly. And the church is going to have to do better if we're going to have an impact in the world around us. And it's not good for our souls to be co-opted by an ideology or a political party or my opinion winning out of somebody else's opinion. We need to have a humility like Paul, even though it took a lot for God to get his attention, for him to go. And then I realized, because he had a lot of opinions. And he didn't stop having opinions, by the way. But I just realized in comparison with, with, with knowing that's a deep experiential knowledge, Jesus. It all pales. Our goal at the end of that uh, passage that we read uh, is not to be right, but to be righteous. 
And Paul says at the end of, of verse 9 there, I became righteous through faith in Christ. It wasn't, it wasn't because I had all the right opinions. And again, I'm, try, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be trying to come to good conclusions, trying to be right about things. I'm saying let's just get the order and the value right. Our ultimate goal is not to be right, it's to be righteous. Paul could have, but I was right about everything. But then I met Jesus and I found out how to be righteous by faith in Jesus. That's our real goal. Uh, verse 10, in, back in Galatians 1, he says, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Again, Paul, he's trying to stand up for the fact that he's an apostle because people had challenged that. Oh, you're not really, uh, you don't have a message from God. It's not really, it's just what you made up, whatever. And so he comes back and, and it sounds a little bit, again, bold or overconfident that he's trying to say, and I won't listen to anybody. You can't tell me what to do. Some of us, that's an easy attitude to have. I got my opinion. It's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm not swayed by all of these opinions because I'm submitted to Christ. Do you get the difference there? I'm not just arrogant going, nobody can tell me what to do. God tells me what to do. So you can't change my mind. He's saying, Christ has changed my mind. Christ has changed everything. Paul isn't saying that he does whatever he wants. He's saying that he does what Christ wants. Big difference. Because, by the way, when you become a servant of Christ, which is what he calls himself, I'm not now, I'm not on my own. I'm not free to do whatever I want. I submit myself to Christ. When you submit yourself to Christ, Christ calls you to serve your fellow human beings. That is clear. How can we approach controversial issues? Two things. One, identify and repent of misplaced passion. Where are you living? If you're really honest with yourself, more, more from anger, from frustration, from being dismissive or divisive. And in those moments, remember taking communion together as a family that unites us and that God's forgiveness is offered to you. Oh, that's just a frustration. And my opinion might even be right, but I can't live out of that frustration. I can't decide how I treat people out of that frustration. I need, number two, humility. Humility. You might be right, or you might be wrong. And you might be wrong with the wrong, or might be right with the wrong attitude. And so let's lead through humility. When we go back to the introduction of this letter, there's something very powerful. I don't think it's a throwaway, the first few verses. Uh, remember, Paul is writing into an explosive time in church history and for the Galatians. This is explosive, and their issues are different than ours. We'll work through what those issues are as we go through the rest of this letter. But nevertheless, great controversy. And so when Paul opens the letter, I think it's important for us to realize what he wants for the Galatians. He says, this letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. You want a little perspective? For those who follow Jesus, where does it all start? All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches in Galatia, so I have a community around me that helps me discern these things. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I think that's for us today, too. In the midst of all the struggles, all the relational stuff, all the, I don't want to see these people, and I don't know how to talk to these people, and my family is struggling through this, my extended family grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. When he says rescue us from this evil world in which we live, that word rescue doesn't mean pluck us out of the world. Rather, it means to release us from the power of the evil in the world. Wouldn't that be beautiful? There's a lot going on around us, and a lot of it is just ugly. 
and the discourse and the way that we treat each other. But what if as we relied deeply and trusted for the righteousness that comes by only trusting in Jesus, that God our Father would release us from the power of the negativity, the fighting, the tearing of a part of people and of families and of relationships. We'd be able to come together united, not always agreeing, but united in the love of Jesus that we're reminded of when we take community, communion together. So for you today, Westside, here in the room and online, wherever you are in the world watching, may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I want to read two prayers from the Book of Common Prayer uh, for grace and peace as I close. If you're in the room, would you stand? We're going to sing again, but would you stand as we, as we pray together? Even if you want to turn up your palms in a, a receptive manner, Perhaps God is speaking to us and maybe to you very specifically today through one or more elements of the service or scriptures or whatever. Oh God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and send your blessed son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord God, almighty and everlasting Father, you have brought us in safety to this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity. And in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ, our Lord.